Today's reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as, I will, as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. We are looking at 2 Corinthians. Just to, I don't mean to correct what um, he had said. It's not really, it is, last week and this week is a mini-series on giving, but we're looking at this because we're, we're seeing it in the course of our uh, weekly, just consecutive working our way through the Bible. And I just say that because personally, I think that is the best way for us to look at the Bible, is rather than taking topics out of context, but for us to look consistently through books of the Bible. That's what we're doing with 2 Corinthians. And so it just so happens at the start of the year, we get to talk about money and giving, okay, which is what Paul tackles in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And he does it because he's trying to raise an offering for the Christians in Jerusalem who are suffering. Okay, and so he calls this offering, verse 1, the ministry for the saints. Now, any fundraiser faces an issue, doesn't he or she? They face a problem. I mean, Tom will tell you this with the, with the building project. How do you get people to part with their cash? That's, what, that's a problem that every fundraiser faces. Paul has got a problem on top of that problem. Okay, he's got another one. And that is that when he first spoke to the Corinthians about this offering for the suffering church in Jerusalem a year ago, they were totally up for it. So 
He could leave Corinth, went up into Macedonia, visiting the churches in Thessalonica and Philippi, for example, and he could tell them, hey guys, we are getting this offering together for the church down in Jerusalem who are struggling, for our brothers and sisters there, and the guys down in Corinth, they are totally up for this. So how about you guys? Are you going to be in on this as well? Verse 2, as he reminds the Corinthians. I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, that's, that's the region that Corinth is, was in, has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Okay, in other words, the Macedonians heard that the Corinthians were totally up for this, and they went, hey, what a great idea. And if the Corinthians are going to give, we're also going to give. Let's join them. Okay, that was a year ago that Corinth responded so positive and inspired the Macedonians. Since then, the Corinthians' enthusiasm has dimmed. In fact, I mean, if you were to compare it to a fire, it's practically burnt out. And so Paul knows that if when he comes to Corinth, visits them again, some Macedonians who the Corinthians have supposedly inspired, have inspired, were to come with him and find actually they haven't given anything, they haven't prepared an offering, it would be deeply embarrassing. And so Paul is sending Titus and a team on ahead with this letter, two Corinthians, as we remember, three Corinthians probably, to, to re-inspire them, to get them back on board, to see why they should do this, to organize themselves, to get this offering together before he comes. Okay, what's that got to do with you and me? Okay, it's this. Okay, what Paul writes here, it's not just helpful for these Corinthians to re-inspire them. I think it's helpful for all of us to re-inspire us to giving. It's helpful for anyone who ever questions, what should I do with my money? Should I give or should I not? You know, should I try and develop and cultivate in my own heart and my family an attitude of generous giving. So it's not just helpful for them, it's helpful for all of us. First point then, how we should give. How we should give. And the first thing that Paul tells them is not just that we should give, but that you and I, they, you and me, that we should give generously. Look at verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Okay, so giving your money away, Paul says, is like a farmer sowing seed. And a farmer could go out into the field, couldn't he, with his bucket of seed, and he could sow sparingly. He could pick up a handful of seed, but keep his hand tightly closed and let the bare minimum of seed drop out. Or he could sow his seed with an open hand and sow liberally and bountifully. And Paul is saying, you and I, we can have the same attitude to giving. We can sow sparingly. We can count every penny. We can give the bare minimum, or you can give generously, bountifully, 
And there is a reason why you would, well, we're going to look at a number of reasons why in, in a moment, but there's a reason why you want to do that, Paul says. And that is that what you get out of your giving, the fruit that you will see crucially depends on which of those two attitudes you adopt to your giving, which of those two attitudes you embrace. Okay, just think about that just more widely. Okay, this principle of you reap what you sow. Or that what you get out depends on, what you get back depends on what you give out. Okay. Or what you, what you get depends on what you put in. Because, I mean, that applies to whole areas of life, doesn't it? I mean, think about your hobbies. Think about sport. Think about learning a musical instrument, like the violin. Okay, throw yourself into it. Apply yourself. Practice. Be disciplined. Okay, and what you, and when it comes to the violin, I've got Lindley in mind here, what, what, you, what you personally get out of it and what other people get out of it is going to be entirely different depending on whether you apply yourself and practice and give yourself to this and throw yourself into it compared to if you really can't quite be bothered. It'll be the difference, thinking about the violin, it'll be the difference between something sounding beautiful and it sounding like a cat being strangled. Okay, that's hobbies, you know, musical instruments. Think about our relationships and what you sow is what you reap. If you criticize and complain all the time, then what, you know, about those around you, and you're always pointing out holes and what's, what's lacking, what's bad, what you get out, your experience, what you have coming back to you is going to be very different from the person who encourages and loves and serves those around them. What you reap is what you sow. Or what you sow is what you reap. What you put in is what you get back. And Paul is saying the same is true for giving. The bountiful giver is going to reap bountifully, but the sparing giver won't. So he says, give and give generously. Okay, but here's the thing, to give generously is not the same as to give carelessly. Verse 7, each one must give, excuse me, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Okay, so firstly, it's not for a wealthy minority in a church to give. It's just down to them. It's not even just for the majority in the church to give. It's that each one, All of us should sit, every every one of us as Christians, as disciples of the Lord Jesus, should sit down and decide, okay, what am I, what are we as a couple if you're married? What are we as a family if you've got kids? What are we going to give? We're going to give generously, but that doesn't mean we're going to give casually. It doesn't mean we're going to give impulsively. It means we're going to give thoughtfully. We're going to sit down and think about this. Okay, so give generously, we give thoughtfully. Thirdly, we're to give joyfully. Verse 7 again. Each one must give, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, last week we saw that one barrier to cultivating generosity is that we, we can think, particularly if you haven't got much at the moment, okay, we can think that what, the amount we have to give, maybe you know, if you're a student or you, you're unemployed at the moment or, or whatever, okay, we can think that 
the amount we have to give is too small to matter. That's, that's one barrier to developing generosity. Another, we saw, is that the comfort or the experiences or security that money can buy can matter too much to us, so we hold on. And um, for any of those, when any of those are the case, okay, we might still give, but we tend to give reluctantly. We give, but in all honesty, we think it's not really worth it because the amount I'm giving is so small. Or I give reluctantly because actually I'd rather spend it elsewhere. So we give with regret. We give reluctantly. And giving from our financial resources isn't something that brings us joy. It's not something we're particularly happy about. In fact, it might just be the opposite. Okay, so why, if that's the case, why would somebody like that give at all? Okay, why not just hold on to our money? Why not just keep it for ourselves? Because, Paul says, you can also give under compulsion. You feel obliged to give. You feel guilty if you don't give. You feel pressure to give. I mean, maybe your own conscience pricks you. You know, I really ought to give, so I'll just give something. Or maybe you think God is standing over you, and he's got a stick, and he's watching what you do with your money. He's got a stick in his hand. Okay, so you feel guilty about not giving. Or maybe you sense pressure from others, you know, the Corinthians. Maybe you know, feel, feel pressure from Paul, or you feel pressure from the pastor, from me. And then we give, but we give under compulsion to get those watching eyes off of us, those watching eyes of conscience or of God or of others. And Paul is saying, hey, don't give like that. Don't give like that. Make your mind up for yourself what to give and give that happily. Give it joyfully, give it cheerfully, because God loves a cheerful giver. I mean, think about, you know, um, think about how parents can be sometimes. Okay? They see their child behaving in a certain way, and they go, Do you know, I just love it when he or she behaves like that, when they, when they behave like that. Or... I mean, I, I did this, you know, sorry to embarrass um, Katie, one of my daughters. We were skiing yesterday, and she got somebody whose name I won't mention, but he was playing the guitar, down this steep piece. And the way she just tended to him and get, gets him down, I just thought, man, that is just great. I just love it, Katie, when you behave like that. Okay, and that's what God's like, isn't it? God sees how our kids, how us as kids behave. He sees generous giving and he goes, I love that. I love a cheerful giver. But if that is how we should give, Paul also says why we should do it in the first place. It's how we should give. Second point, why we should give. And firstly, and obviously, because it meets the needs of others. Verse one again. This collection is the ministry for the saints. It's for them, it's for others to meet their needs. And verse 12, the ministry of this service is supplying the needs of the saints. Now, I don't think there's much debate about this. Maybe you'd argue, I hope you wouldn't. One of the outcomes of our current individualistic culture, our current look out for yourself culture, 
that celebrates the individual over communities and families and institutions is that it has left us relationally all the poorer. I mean, no society is richer, you know, relationally. No family is richer. No, 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 no um, romantic relationship is richer for people looking out for themselves. Generous, joyful, thoughtful giving to meet the needs of others is the exact opposite of that. Because it says, hey, we're family, and we are, I'm responsible for you, and I'm going to step up to my responsibility to you. And so generous, joyful, thoughtful giving deepens ties. It doesn't weaken them. And the Christians in Jerusalem are in need, so their brothers and their sisters in Corinth and Macedonia want to stand up and try and meet that need. Why? Because that's what loving families do. Okay, and yet that kind of physical need didn't end at the close of the first century, did it? I mean, poverty and persecution have not gone away. Yeah, that may be our brothers and sisters in Iran, our Christian brothers and sisters in Iran, it might be um, thinking about physical need. It might be a student with financial needs in our church. It might be a poor family in your neighborhood. Okay, it's why when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Because I don't, know about if, I don't know if you think it like this. Okay, why do you go to work? Why do you earn a salary? Is it to meet your own needs? Is it to put food on the table? Is it to put a roof over your head? Absolutely it is. It is absolutely about meeting your needs. But it is also about meeting the needs of others. We do it so that we have resources to share, Paul says. Okay, it's about meeting physical needs, but the needs aren't just physical, are they? Okay, one of the Macedonian churches whose giving was so exemplary, you know, we saw uh, last week, it was a church in Philippi. And they financially supported Paul in his missionary work for more than a decade. And Paul tells them that he prayed for them <clears throat> with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Okay, so they weren't just giving so that Paul had food to eat, were they? They were giving so that others could hear the gospel like they had heard the gospel. It's why Paul wrote to the church in Galatia and said, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And he wrote earlier to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians that the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Okay, so we give to meet needs, and those needs are physical, but they are also spiritual needs to be met. We give to see the gospel spread. We, we give to see the good news go out. Whether that's giving to us as a church, whether it's giving to ministries like Colin Donaldson and the JBU and the work with the students, whether it's giving to our church building project. I mean, yeah, let's just talk about that. You know, when you give, and you know, I hope, hope you do, hope you 
If you haven't yet, I hope you will. When we give to that, we are not giving so that, I mean, I hope you are not giving to that, are you, so that you have a more comfortable seat to sit on on a Sunday morning. That's not why you're giving, is it? Okay, and believe me, they won't be more comfortable. Yeah, <laughs> probably. We're too tight-fisted for that. Okay, they're not going to be any more good. That's not why you're giving. Why are you giving to the church building project? Because we know that the spiritual needs out there are huge. And we want to grow and we want to build in ways that meet that need and bring people to know the grace of God that we know. And, and we want to do it for God's glory. That's why we give to that. Not so we have a nice building to sit comfortably in. We do it to see the gospel spread. Okay, so we give to meet need. We give to meet physical need and spiritual need. Okay, Paul gives a second reason, and that is why we should do it, and that is that you will reap a harvest if you do, that you will reap. That something will come back to you. Okay, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Verses 10 and 11. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Okay, think about it. Your financial resources, okay, my financial resources, your salary, my salary, it's not money, is it? What is it? It's seed, Paul says, and you're a farmer. Okay, you, <clears throat> you think you're a teacher, or you think you work for you know, Medi, or you think you work for PMI, or you think you work for whoever. True. Actually, you're a farmer, and your salary is seed. The question is, the only question is, is what will you sow your seed to? And what harvest will you reap? What harvest will that seed yield? You see, God has provided for us financially, not so that we can indulge ourselves and build bigger barns, but so that we can live lives of blessing and service to others. Hey, the world is all about live for yourself. The Christian faith has never been about living for yourself. The Christian faith is about living a life that glorifies God and that loves and serves and gives to other people. We've been enriched, Paul says, so that we can be generous. And our ability to do that does not depend on ourselves, but on God's limitless supply. That whatever our situation, you know, in, in, in every certain, you know, just go back to verse 8, you know, in, in all things, at all times. So whatever our situation is, whether that's even when, you know, our finances are tight or when life is an emotional struggle, we find that we always have something to give. Our money, but it might be your time, it might be encouragement, it might be love, it might be your presence, it might be your prayers. And when we do, when we live that kind of generous life, it multiplies. And the reason it multiplies, Paul says, is that God blesses those who bless. He makes all grace abound. And the one who gives of themselves 
finds their resources to give multiplying. Now, is that the prosperity gospel? No. Could that mean financially? Sure, for some it might. That the person, having proved themselves trustworthy and generous with little, God gives them more and multiplies their seed for sowing. To live expensive, comfortable lives? No. But multiplies their seed for even more acts of generosity. As one commentator says, God gives to givers so they can go on giving. Okay, so multiplies our seed. Paul also talks here of abounding in good works, that as you give generously and joyfully, it does something in your heart, doesn't it? Because you're not just investing your cash, you're investing your heart. Your heart, in a sense, your heart precedes where you give the money, but your heart also follows where you give your money. You're not just investing your cash, you're investing your heart, you're investing your life. And, and as you do that, you will find your interest in the people and the work that you are giving to increasing, and you'll find your prayers for them and your encouragement of them and your acts of service towards them all growing. It's why Paul calls it a harvest of righteousness. You're invested in every way by cultivating joyful, generous, thoughtful giving. You will become spiritually all the richer, Paul says, and your character will grow all the richer. It's why Jesus says, it's by losing yourself that you find yourself. It's in dying that you live. It's in giving that you receive. Again, secular culture says, no, 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 it's by promoting yourself. It's by protecting yourself. It's by insisting on your rights. But where does that lead us? Up the dead end of a fractured, broken, and divided society. So you know in your heart of hearts that Jesus is right, that you reap what you sow, that those who live open-hearted, open-handed lives are all the richer emotionally, relationally, and spiritually, while those who don't grow all the poorer. Okay, there's a third reason Paul gives, and that is that a generous life, surprisingly maybe, is a long life. Okay, it's a life that lasts. Verse 9, as it is written... He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And Paul is quoting Psalm 112. And if you look at Psalm 112, it's just a short psalm. It's a psalm that describes the life of someone who fears God and delights in his commands. And such a person, the psalmist says, gives generously to meet the needs of others. And... Their children flourish. And when everything seems dark around them, they've got light. And they're gracious and they're merciful and they act with justice. And there's a dignity and a stability about them. And when news is bad, the psalmist says, they find themselves able to keep trusting the Lord instead of crumbling into fear. And as you read that psalm, if you read it carefully, I think you will come away from that and think, I want to be like that. I want to be like that person. 
But there's a, there's a catch at the end, because at the end of the psalm, that person is contrasted with the wicked person who only lives for themselves. And the psalmist says, the desire of the wicked will perish. They want life their way. They want their wants met. But when death comes knocking, those desires perish. They disappear like a vapour. Whereas, as Paul quotes here in 2 Corinthians 9, the righteousness of those who fear God, who give generously and joyfully because they love God, that life endures forever. Their righteousness endures forever. Their life lasts. Okay, so let me ask you something. Do you want to make your life count? Okay, and I don't just mean, you know, I, I don't just mean particularly this life. Do, do you want to build something that endures? Do you want to make a difference that will last? A you know, difference not just in this life, but in all eternity. And I would say to you, ask God to help you cultivate a life of joyful generosity and of sacrificial service. And if you're married, if you're considering marriage, okay, discuss that together, do it together. And for those of you who have got kids, okay, get them on board. I mean, you know that you can't take your money with you when you die. And you know that the last piece of clothing you are going to wear doesn't have any pockets in it, does it? Okay, so send it on ahead, take your stuff, and invest it in what will go on ahead, in meeting the needs of others, in the care of the poor, in the protection of the persecuted, and in the spreading of the gospel. And as you do, Paul says something else happens. It's the fourth reason he gives, and that is it will bring glory to God. Now, another reason we saw last week why the Corinthians may have stalled in their giving is it was that in their culture, wealth was viewed as a marker of reputation. The more you had, the more impressive you were. Nothing much has changed, has it? You know, wealthy, rich people seem to have way more of a voice than they really should. Nothing much has changed. And we can think that to have newer, bigger, better is a sign of a successful life. That to have newer, bigger, better is a sign of someone who has made it. I want to ask you, is that really a vision worth living for? Is that really a vision to give your life for? In the vast expanse of the universe and in the light of eternity, what are we? What is our life? And to live this life For our own glory, that is a very small and unimpressive vision to live for, isn't it? And Paul is encouraging these Corinthians to get in on something far greater. Verses 12 and 13. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God, By their approval of this service, they will glorify God. In verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you. Okay, so as we give, people's needs are met. 
And they thank God that yet again God has provided for them. God, I thought I was in this. I thought my back was against the wall. And yet again, you have provided for me. So who gets the glory? God gets the glory. And the people who are provided for pray for God's blessing on those who gave. Or maybe you give here to church or to missions. And people become Christians. And kids and youth and students get discipled. And they start worshipping God and living for his glory when before they might have walked away from him. And who is getting more glory through your giving? God is, as more people live for his glory. Okay, think though, how does that cascade that Paul describes here of prayer and praise and glory begin? What's the catalyst? It's by you and me taking a cupful of our financial resources and pouring it out. And God makes that cupful into a waterfall. We sow a seed and reap a harvest. Okay, so let me ask you another question. What do you want to see multiply in this world? What do you personally want to see multiply? I doubt very much it is more covetousness and greed. You don't want that for your kids. You don't want that for society. And you don't want to see more discord and division multiplying, do you? And you almost certainly don't want to see secular ideologies multiplying. I mean, if you're a Christian, you want to see thanksgiving and worship and praise and God's glory multiplying, don't you? That's just instinctive to you. So I would say to you, think seriously about how you can use your resources entrusted to you so that you can see that kind of multiplying happen. Okay, if you're anything like me, you can know how you should give and you can even know why you should give. What can make you want to give? Last point then how and why we can give. Okay, look at verse 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Okay, so the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, brings about an obedience, a submission, Paul says, of our lives to God and to his ways. In other words, the gospel, it just has this power to shape us. It has a power intrinsic to it to change us, to transform us, to transform the way we see and do life, including the way we see and use money. And it has this power to bring all of life in conformity, increasingly into line with how God would have us live it. The question is, what is that power? What is that power intrinsic to the gospel? And why does it have power to break the power of money over us? Okay, we'll look at verses 14 and 15, okay, where Paul is saying that the Christians in Jerusalem will long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. 
I want to finish with this. One of Jesus' best-known parables is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's about a man who was robbed and left for dead in the road. And it's about how a Samaritan, of all people, was the only person who stopped to help him. And the Samaritan took care of him. And he gave of his financial resources to meet his physical needs. But you know what the sting in the tail of that parable is? It is not that the people who didn't stop were all deeply religious. They're all churchgoers. And it's not that the man who did stop, who does help, who did give, is a despised foreigner and an enemy. The sting in the tail of this parable, when you see it, is that the man who is robbed and beaten up and lying half dead in the road, and who is unable to save or help himself, is a Jew. He's a believer. He's you. He's me. And Jesus' point is, you will only be able to be a good neighbor and use your resources to joyfully and generously meet the needs of others when you first realize it's you who needs saving. It's you who needs helping. It's you who lies wounded and broken. It's you who is lying in the street. It's you who needs a neighbor. And who is our neighbor? Who came as our neighbor? Christ came and he picks us up from the road. And the inexpressible gift that Paul talks about here is that Jesus didn't give sparingly. He gave everything. He gave radically and sacrificially and generously while we were still his enemies. And he didn't just sow his finances, he sowed his life. And he died that we might live. He was lost that we might be found. And if we are to give joyfully, Jesus gave for the joy that was set before him that by his dying and his rising again, he has won for us a righteousness that endures forever. Legalistic religion tells you, you've got to obey and you've got to give to earn God's favor. The gospel says no. Because of Jesus, because of his obedience, because of his supreme act of giving, you already have God's overflowing, abundant, abounding favor and grace upon you. You already stand in grace. And the degree to which you know that and feel that and experience that, the degree to which the good news of the gospel, the generosity of God has sunk into our hearts is the degree to which we will be lavishly generous. And as it sinks in, we'll increasingly become joyful, generous givers. Because God is. He's the ultimate joyful, generous, thoughtful giver. And he loves it when he sees his children giving joyfully because they are displaying the family likeness. And he'll see you doing it and he'll go, that's my boy. That's my girl. Let's pray.